Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. In this episode, I chat with Charlotte Taylor from When the Adults Change. Charlotte works really closely with Paul Dix and many of you will be familiar with Paul's book Everything Changes When the Adults Change. Many, many schools work with um, the principles contained within Paul's book. Many, many schools work with um, the organisation as well to embed those principles into their school culture. But there's also lots of misunderstandings and assumptions um, about the work and, and what Paul says or what the, the messages are from his work. So this was really an opportunity for Charlotte and I to explore and unpick some of those misunderstandings and assumptions. We kind of fell into the conversation and the recording. Um, as Charlotte said, she had visited Glasgow, um, had been invited up by Maureen McKenna, and suddenly it made sense of some tweets that I had seen um, that I couldn't quite work out who Charlotte was. Um, so lovely to to make that connection and great to have the time to have that conversation with Charlotte. I, I guess that probably, you know, leads into me sort of saying <laughs> who I am and what I do. <laughs> Um, so obviously I work with Paul, which is um, my biggest accolade. It's what we, I'm the per- person that turns up that, you know, everyone's permanently disappointed that I'm not Paul. Um, <laughs> but uh, within the business, I'm responsible for looking at the way we work with schools and now home and look at the impact of projects the um, sort of barriers that might exist, some implementation, change management stuff. From a personal perspective, and increasingly in that, in part of that project design, is looking at how we manage behaviour and how that impacts children's mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, My background is... um, you know mental mental health psychiatry I've done a lot of work in trauma quite um a big trauma I suppose uh, so uh victims of murder children that have been in ro- like fatal road accidents um that's my pre-poor life um and I enjoy helping people understand the impact of shame, how easy it is that we slide into sort of causing harm to children's mental health whilst trying to support their behaviour. Yeah. Interesting. So what what drew you towards working with Paul and working with the organisation? Um, <laughs> so um, people don't like to pre-book planning, like training, um for when perhaps a child in their school murders another like it's not a pre-planned gig and it meant that I was spending a lot of my time sort of doom mongering um yeah uh, so so in lockdown I met I met Paul through the radio station um we got talking um one of my bugbears about big trauma and mental health is the shame that surrounds trauma and the impact that has on our ability to process trauma. And the more I understood his work, I saw that he was sort of eradicating shame from more of a grassroots level. Being completely honest, he could offer me a bit more stability. I have young children, um, he he takes me for my weird and wonderful working habits and lets me like clock off at three o'clock and clock back on at seven 
uh, he's happy that I'm a control freak and um, I enjoy being, um, you know, behind the scenes and and, um, and I'm happy that everybody is permanently like, oh, it's not Paul. <laughs> yeah, so we've, um, yeah, we've been working together for about two years and, um, the, you know, the parenting book has come out in that time. Um, so we've been doing lots of work on that. And it's interesting where behaviour management is going and the different conversations that that's opening up. Um, and, you know, I think it's a bit like the Wild West out there at the moment. Like, the we don't get calls that are like, we want some training, can we book it in? The calls are like, we're struggling half our staff are off we've got huge challenges with behavior our children have really changed um we're not sure how if we've got any budget can you help so that requires a bit more unpicking and thinking about how we address behavior and support everyone I like a challenge so yeah <laughs> um these things don't go in straight lines I suppose do they <laughs> no planned out routes that you follow A and B and then C and straight from there. Um, so before we get into into that kind of maybe the detail of, of the work and what's emerging at the moment, I guess one of the reasons for, for reaching out to, to speak to you is that um, certainly I know from my own experience of being in schools and I'm talking for, for Scotland here is there's hardly a school you go into where they haven't read Paul's book or it's not there on a desk or, or <laughs> I don't mean it only sits on a bookshelf I mean that it is part of of the work and I I know that many schools have engaged in in training and work with with the organization as well um and looking at the principles of the work that you do I guess there's three key principles there's the relational practice trauma-informed and nurture-informed and I guess um, it would be good just to start by unpicking and getting clarity what what each of those mean and what that looks like, because I guess all of those words may often get used interchangeably and mixed up, maybe. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, and thanks for asking. It's a really great question and an opportunity to explain some of those things. So um, I think one of the biggest challenges we have around the, the concept of relational practice Practice, yeah. is that people think it's just about having good relationships yeah. and people think that having good relationships is just about being nice and actually people try and um, manage that from an emotional state and actually one of the most important things about relational practice is calm adult behavior consistency it's a system that allows us to build, we call it re relational currency. Um, and I like to think of um, young people, children and young people with poker chips. And relational practice is a system where you deliberately build the poker chips yeah. so that when behaviour is wobbly, you have some currency to play with. and that what you're never doing is attacking a child's self-esteem um, or their well-being or sense of belonging. There's lots of like scripts and routines and support that means, for example, um, one of my favorite relational scripts is saying, I need you to, which mm -hmm. has literally changed my life at home. And um, I have an example of how ineffective it is every morning when my husband comes in and says uh can you put your shoes on for school to our five-year-old who promptly says no <laughs> um and that's you know a really interesting example of some really simple changes that completely change the direction of travel of a relationship and doesn't leave you freestyling or emotionally exhausted or um down a rabbit hole you're that you have no control over it supports things like regulation mm -hmm. um 
helping children feel safe, um, which is different to just being nice um, and actually asks less of the adult because there's a plan to follow than the feeling of having to pour everything into a relationship. I I also think um, one of the challenges with this relationship relational idea is that when we're operating from a emotional relationship perspective, we have some defaults on how relationships work. So we might positively notice or say something nice to a learner as they arrive at school on a Monday. They might tell us to go do one. That creates an emotional response in us. So lots of relational practice is about sort of dropping nuggets in and leave. We call them drive-bys, but it's about not getting into the response particularly or being emotionally drawn into things um yeah it takes a while I think Mm. I think you can digest most of Paul's book like 80% of it in 20% of time like you just sort of fly through and think this makes sense and this all sounds great and I would say you know and perhaps I'm a useful person to talk about it because before Meeting Paul, I had no idea who he was. I'd never read the books. Yeah. Um, and I, and even though I had a background in psychology and I flicked through the book and thought, this is great. This is like being nicer to kids and, you know, the real intricacies and how each component of what he suggests schools do all feel, feeds in and often we start we we go into a school um because they're having uh, disruptions at lunchtime with a specific year group or whatever and when you pull that all the way back you find that children are getting dysregulated really early in the day and hanging on to their emotions and and then letting it all out at lunchtime or or you know whatever so relational practices you know, really about a system for regulation and support and being predictable so that learners feel safe. It's, I mean, we don't promote not being nice to children. <laughs> That's, a, you know, the kindness is a very desirable byproduct. <laughs> it is kind by nature, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think Paul gets not bad press, but, um, people get confused about, is this guy just saying, just be nice to everyone? Um, And I guess that kind of leads into the trauma-informed concept, which sits hand in hand, right, with this idea that if a child has experienced trauma, we should let them do whatever, never have consequences. Um, That, I mean, the spoiler alert is that isn't what <laughs> what we're talking about. Um, that's about understanding. If we think about that regulation piece, children who have experienced trauma will have a, a, a different structure, different needs, and will respond to something differently. And it might be an adult. It might be the lighting in your classroom, it could be noises, it might be their need for personal space. It also might be things that we think shouldn't cause dysregulation. So tutting and asking a child to phrase the front again, for children that have experienced complex trauma, that would that could trigger a sort of naught to 100 flight or flight response and what you see is children that might run shout push things over um and you know we encourage and support adults to look at things those behaviors through a lens not that says they're allowed to do that because they've experienced trauma but what can we do as adults to support them and scaffold their learning so that they feel 
safe and are able to come to the, I mean, desk, table, <laughs> whatever the proverb may be, and engage and that we are reducing the likelihood of them experiencing any more harm whilst they're learning. And I think trauma-informed as a concept and as of something we've built into practice is understanding that children come to school with, with different needs and that to make learning equitable, mm -hmm. we have to adapt. And we don't have to adapt to be a therapist. We don't have to solve the trauma. We have to be aware that children's attentions, children's vulnerabilities, their sense of safety, their idea of what is threatening is different. And actually, we as because we do a whole school approach, what we look at is really going to the sort of safest level with the mid, the lowest amount of risks so that all children feel safe. And, and it, it's interesting because one of the questions we get asked the most is, this isn't working for two children or, you know, we're doing really well, but there are a couple of children that it's not reaching. And it's not about changing the practice. Yeah. It's about making it more deliberate and more consistent because children that are the most vulnerable and have experienced the most complex trauma will need that cemented and they will need it all the time. So if, for example, you um, ask a child to stop talking and you say it and you're a bit short, for children that have healthy attachment styles, a high sense of belonging, good self-esteem, good levels of resilience, that might just bounce straight off them and it, and it not be an issue. Children that are low on all of those things, that could be a real threat to them. And so what you're seeing is a trauma response. Yeah. Um, I mean, unfortunately, it does still come down to <laughs> when the adults change, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, uh, but yeah, so it's, it, again, it's not about... Um, People often think that we don't do consequences or pulls the guy that says no to exclusions. And that's that's not true. We we the, the approach uses consequences and some of the schools we work with still need to use exclusions from time to time. It's about doing that with insight, with dignity and really without making it a a trauma or something that attacks the child's self-esteem and sense of self um yeah yeah and the the nurture informed well nurture's a whole new meaning to me since I've been to Glasgow so, <laughs> <laughs> so I was very lucky to be invited to come to Glasgow with Maureen McKenna um a couple of weeks ago and it has completely changed my life actually um because so we speak about nurture a lot and we talk about that ensuring that children are given the opportunity to have to equitable learning and you know wrap around support and all of those things and then that sounds really good on paper <laughs> and then you go to Glasgow and you're like oh this is what this looks like <laughs> I see. Yeah, so I think when we think about what nurture means, we're thinking about, you know, building equity and thinking about what children need to thrive and looking at, you know, more and more in light of the sort of cost of living crisis and post-pandemic um, access to food and access to um, learning materials and good experiences and access to reading and good face time with adults and 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 you know I live in a we live in Surrey and so there is a sense in many schools here that nurture isn't an at-school job 
and that nurture is something that is very much on the side of the parents but times have changed and I think that's one of the biggest issues when we look at the pandemic is that homes and what parents the pressures that parents are under whether that's that they're working from home and so constantly are struggling between an inbox and a child that wants their attention whether that's opportunities to do things at the weekend have been reduced because the cost of living means that the hundred quid that was on Legoland or the trampoline park or whatever it was has gone. Like all of those positive experiences are, are nurturing and are what children need to come to school and engage in their learning and feel worthy of success and confident of social mobility particularly in older years um that's all that's all wrapped up in that and then when we when I went to Glasgow with Maureen what I saw was schools that look at the whole family as part of a child's life so they have workshops to help parents feel confident reading with their children. They have drop-ins for parents that want to want help with forms. They have safe spaces for parents that need somewhere to go. Like, it honestly, it blew my mind because I was like, this is, this is what this stuff means, because particularly in early years, because if, if parents don't feel confident reading, then there's no reading time. Like, yeah. if they haven't filled out the form to get the additional benefits they're entitled to or support or club or whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, lots of schools that we're speaking to at the moment, they're saying, we've never had a, we've never done behavior here. We've never had behavior. And yet some of the, you know, we've got some real issues. Um, and I think I think parents are struggling to, to do full nurture at home um, for various reasons. And so I think lots of schools will need to think slightly more creatively and slightly broader than every parent will drop their child off in the morning and that child will be ready and able to engage in learning and and start looking at what experiences might children need beyond that. Yeah. I guess one of the things I've picked up from what you were talking about there about the work and the principles and um, the application of that is, you know, and I, I've I can recognize what you were saying about you can you can read the book quite quickly and you can go yeah that makes sense that makes sense that makes sense yep that aligns with everything but there's there's a nuance to then actually kind of creating the systems or creating the system within your community that actually allows that to become a way of being and not just things that people do sometimes or things that people think that they do and often there's <laughs> tension between what we think we do and what we actually do and what we things people experience off us and what they actually experience off us yeah it's a getting it right and and knowing where to start and and feeling confident in the practice is it is a challenge and although I speak to schools about this every day um I mean mainly because I thought my job was dependent on it I said to my husband we best start doing this at home do you know what I mean just just in case that Paul Dix blokes has got a camera somewhere they can't have me hanging the toys out of the window <laughs> saying you're never gonna have these again um and even you know even with Paul literally on the at the end of a phone there were times early on where I was like this is bonkers like what are we doing the right thing here um or you know I said quite a few times I think he's mugging us off not Paul our son like, <laughs> mugging us off here look I mean he's getting away really lightly 
And I think that was because at that point, to me, it was just a set of things to do. Um, and I'm, we're probably 18 months in now. And I can confidently, it makes me quite emotional thinking about how awful I used to be doing. I would never speak to him or respond the way I used to. It is just so far from anything I would ever allow myself to do. But that's taken some time. And the the outcomes that everybody wants take some time too. So also you get things that you don't expect that you don't know that you're looking for so my son might come home and say i had a really hard day today and we'll sit and talk about it like i never even knew i was looking for that as an outcome uh i just wanted them to stop getting detentions like <laughs> that was my only driver really um and you the calmness like detentions didn't go down immediately and they haven't disappeared we're probably like 70 percent down um but the house isn't like a circus anymore um i'm not on the pendulum between being really quite awful to him in desperation that he will learn or make sense of what I'm saying or you know see the light and never have a detention again and then actually feeling quite guilty so swinging to the other side of the pendulum and letting him stay up all night playing xbox or you know giving him 20 quid to go to dominoes because I feel awful that I've just been so awful to him we just have like this calm adult fair approach to everything and he feel he trusts us, which he didn't before. Like he's learning how we do things and is growing into an adult that sure will make mistakes and do things, but but talk about them and reflect on them and 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 that process and, and getting into it isn't what people think I think and and like you said those nuances and at school of course the problem is well I mean there are there are lots of challenges one of them is that it, there's normally one person that's read the book yeah and then expects everyone else to be on the same page <laughs> even though they might have had you know say they've had a 60-day experience with with Paul and the book uh and then they're like, right, we've read this book. And what you all need to do is use three rules, get on the gates, uh, notice everyone and do restorative conversations. And other people don't have time to read the book, don't have that same experience. And so are suddenly going along with something they don't fully understand. Um, adults are all at different points. Um, and, and that creates some... Yeah, wobbly adult behavior. Um, people want to do the fun stuff first, and actually, sometimes you've got to do the hard stuff. Yeah. So, everybody loves positive noticing because it's a really easy, really nice thing to do. If you pour positive noticing into a school that ultimately has a bit of a disconnect with equity of learners, you get 20% of the school being showered in positive note, like positive noticing, 60% of the school getting some positive noticing and the 20% of children that are the most vulnerable getting no positive noticing at all. Um, and so it's a lot of, about looking at, it's like a big change management project. Um, so on top of being teachers, parents, <laughs> therapists, <laughs> you know we're also expecting teachers to be experts in change management and that's why we've you know we've worked really hard on on the the process of implementation um because I think that's what it comes down to often is how how do we do this yeah. and how can we do it whilst we've got you know 35 barriers 
for adults that don't want to come for the journey, a line of parents that want us to exclude this child. Like, how do we do it with all of that? And this, you know, isn't a project where we say, right, we need a clear run. <laughs> we need a clear run. <laughs> um, and that's why our team who, who do training and stuff are have been doing it for so long um, and and have got such complex experiences because it's it's hard. We don't do, um, we used to, we used to do just come and listen to us talk for three hours and, you know, what a cushy gig that was for everyone. We'd talk, they'd listen, they'd do some stuff, it would be enough. Life's changed. What people need now is coaching and walking with them and project planning and internal comms and, you know, conversations about the one adult that wishes they were doing something completely different. And as a business, we've changed to facilitate all of that. So it's, um, I mean, I love it, but there's a lot more meat on the bones than which is a shame. I mean, Paul's a brilliant speaker. Paul yeah. speaking for a few hours should be able to change the world. Like he's good <laughs> enough. Um, but alas, the world is far more complex. So yeah. we get right in the nitty gritty and I, I really enjoy it. Every, every project is completely different. Like yeah. every school, it, although, you know, almost every school has the same, you know, internal truancy is a problem, low level disruption, um, an increasing SEN need with a trend of copycatting from another small percentage of learners. Um, people are trying to empower middle leaders because SLT have, you know, have got 20 million other things that they're trying to do and just no capacity. All of those conversations are really quite similar. Um, but what's different is the the plan for implementation and what the pieces of the jigsaw look like and how we need to put them in order to help each individual school tackle those things. Yeah. And in the work that you do with schools, are there themes emerging about, um, I guess, enabling conditions? Because like you say, there are the 35 barriers and all the things. And- yeah the the self-expanding to-do list and demands and policy and all of that kind of stuff but are there any noticings that you have as a team around you know the conditions that actually support a school to embrace the work with you and to to really get that implementation embedded I guess yeah so that's a great question um yeah so I would say the the biggest piece of advice I offer schools is is about the reality of the comms um, and, and, and sort of mapping this out as, as a process and how that's going to look. So mm-hmm. promising people the world um, so that they get on the bus and get started is going to be an issue if in six weeks' time everything's got much worse. Like, you can't sort of coax them on with false promises. <laughs> you know, ha- understanding that the first thing children are going to do when you change the boundaries and rules around behavior is push them hard like there's no you know fear of being honest about that and saying this is going to be really hard and it's going to take time and it's going to be difficult we're going to do this really slowly we're going to start with one thing but we're going to hold on And we're going to hold on because we need to do that for the sake of our children and our communities. Um, I think building on, there's so much research coming out at the moment in terms of the links between behaviour management, mental health. Yeah. Weaving that in, like making it a a cause and a purpose rather than a choice of behavior management companies is useful um so yeah those things the slow and steady utilizing champions um feeling continually connected to that greater piece 
so that it isn't just about, you know, the, the, the truth is you can go into almost any classroom that's using almost any behaviour management strategy consistently and you will be able to see children following the rules. Like, yeah. that isn't the question. The question is, how do we minimise the cost and the harm caused to children and young people in the way we do that? And if if you want the answer to be very little, then this is a path worth following. We do, um, like at my daughter's school, I've been doing some stuff with parents and that's really helped, like yeah. getting them in, helping them. I think explaining how um, intuitive it is to shame children like mm-hmm. it's really easy it's, it's, it's kind of what we've all been built on is I'm an adult you're a child you listen because I'm speaking mm-hmm. uh, it, it we're, we're sort of rewiring some heavy rooted complex stuff that's in us that's in society and for schools that frame that and have opportunities for staff to say I've, I need to swap faces here. I, I, I can't stay in control of my emotions or this isn't, I, I'm, I'm not on this today. So we need to park this behavior incident till tomorrow. Um, you know, adults don't have to be perfect. We know <laughs> that, that we're all humans too. And it is really difficult. I also often say to people, So I often speak to teachers or heads who will tell me all about how brilliant they are with their children and how they do recognition and restorative conversations. And then we'll start effing and blinding about teachers that aren't following suit that are on their last warning of their job. (laughs) So I'm always like, maybe just reread the book and think about your adults. Like there isn't an expiry for wanting to be recognized. There isn't, there is, there is no time in our adult life where what we want is our P45 waved rather than an opportunity yeah. to have a conversation. And I think lots of people think that relational practice is something that younger children deserve. Mm. And the notion of doing that as children get older, there's something in lots of our brains that says, oh, well, they're 13 now, they should know better, don't need all this teaching and reminding and scaffolding they're a teenager they know what they're doing and it's deliberate and manipulative Mm. so we should respond you know with punishment and similar behaviors so I think just thinking about it as something for everyone um and looking at all the reasons to engage so you know you don't have to pull everyone in on wanting to be calmer maybe some teachers like going into school and having you know a bit of a whirlwind um it it doesn't always have to be about the kids either it might be for some teachers do it just because it makes their lives easier um you know some people do it just because they get to do more teaching and learning and less managing behavior it 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 isn't always this idea that we're doing this because it's better to be nice yeah. um there are there are lots of things that that you will you know once you really get into it that you will think this was a benefit or an outcome that yeah. I didn't expect I, I guess what you're saying there is there are lots of different hooks that we can use to engage people in the whole process and it doesn't have to be one one purpose it can be many purposes yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, for a leader, uh, we talk often about hares and tortoises and the importance of tortoise leadership. And, you know, if it were me, uh, I would try and force myself not to. I'm naturally quite a hare and would want to go and do the whole book immediately and, you know, rant and rave about it and get really excited. But there's kind of schools that we see do this really well. The leadership spend a lot of time planning, understanding, personalizing the approach before they even tell anyone about it. Uh-huh. Like the whole school, the, the, the comms to the whole school is something that leadership can 
can spend time managing and thinking about and mapping out that journey and deciding if, you know, announcing that you're going to go zero exclusions and give everyone cups of tea. Like if that isn't a message that's going to work for everyone, start by saying next week, we're going to try saying I need you to rather than can you please like that's fine too if it gets you going I think something else that's really important is how it looks on day one isn't how it will look on day 30 and 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 again for day 90 so often we have um I did a workshop this morning for parents and there were so many questions that um on day one seem really relevant but if they're you know when they're 60 days down the line things will change slightly so um you know behavior changes as well so um one of the things we say to parents is to stop shouting and immediately about seven hands went up and we're like okay we'll stop shouting but what about when (laughs) it's sort of a blanket no um and as you get further into the approach, even if you didn't make a pledge to stop shouting, you would naturally shout less because so much of this isn't actually about responding to difficult behaviour. It's about building preventative measures into all of your interactions, your routines, your structures. Um, and it's the same with schools, you know. I said to one of the parents this morning, I hate to break it to you, but the teacher's not on the door every morning just to say hello to you, which seemed a revelation to her. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, the the reason I said it was she'd said, um, why do children behave at school? Why, Why does my child behave at school and not at home? And I said, well, if you think about school, almost every aspect of their day has been planned to support behavior. Like there are routines, there are expectations, there's the meet and greet, the positive noticing, the wonderful walking, like it all feeds in. And, and so there are, there are less instances whereas at home often it's a bit of a free-for-all and so you end up being a like playing whack-a-mole because every time they you know so it's about building all of that and really thinking how do how are we going to do this like how are we going to take the essence of this approach and some essences of others um and build something that works for us and how are we going to frame that so that it works for our adults yeah like people often ask me about rules you know do we have to use ready respectful safe i mean no it's just the principle it just has to be three words not um but three words that can be used as a rule so someone asked if they could use resilience as a word it can't be a rule that children have to be resilient. Like that's that's uh, an outcome or, or a, an object, a character. Like um, also things like kind. Like I see why you'd want them as a rule, but really their values. Yeah. When you really sit and think about the words, yeah. um, ready, respectful, safe are pretty strong. But like. I mean, by all means, you can change them as long as they work. And I think that using using ready, respectful, safe, um, and if if you're going to use simple rules, all about all of the scripts are there. It's all ready to go, and you could use it for a year and then revisit it once you're more confident and familiar with the approach and think, how do we? change this like how do we want to make it ours but um I think getting going is is um you know you build confidence and learn as you go yes Um, Yes. some of our schools have been on sorry some of our schools have just been on the most amazing journeys and we're always learning from the work our partner schools do you know uh it's not a secret that lots of the book, the stories in Paul's books are, 
you know, pinched from schools that are doing brilliant, I mean, pinched with permission and acknowledgement, mm -hmm. but um, schools that do brilliant work um, and, and being out and about, we constantly think, wow, you know, that's a great way of doing things. Um, we, our partner school network is something we're really proud of and, and a place that people can go to get inspiration and, and, and understanding of, of the how. Um, I think one of the challenges with the book is that it's sometimes it's difficult to understand with what's in front of you, how you get to where the book describes um, because there will still be, you know, that you need that time where you're almost going to be a bit in limbo, where there's still quite a lot of difficult behaviour. There are still adults that can't, aren't quite on board. And I often say, you know, you're going to go, you'll, you'll be, it will be wobbly for a few months. But if you're wobbly moving in the right direction, that's okay. If you're, um, you know, a control freak and want everything perfect immediately like I do it's going to be difficult because you have to just let some stuff go and I would say um 80% of the course I have a like but oh if we do this we're still gonna have to we haven't got anyone to sort out the detention system yet like you can start you can do some stuff and know that in six months time you're going to look at the detention system like you don't have to do it all. Yes. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think small incremental changes that are deliberate is probably, you know, the best way to do it. Yeah. And I guess that's where really understanding the principles and being clear on, on that gives you the strength to be able to do that and to be flexible with that. Because if you're just trying to do stuff that you've seen someone else do and it doesn't work, that's when you get really un unstuck and wobbly because you don't then really know what to do it's like well it's not working but you've not got yeah, to... yeah, yeah. lots of people think that so like right well, we're doing meet and greet and I'm like okay give give me an example like meet and greet isn't like it's great to have a face on the gate but yeah. it's about dropping in that positive noticing yeah. one but also like it's a great way to just preventatively set the time for learning lovely to see you this morning charlie like, i'm so impressed with your timekeeping could you just um take your headphones out so you're ready for learning amazing like you know just just getting everyone in on the right tone and if you have someone on the gate and then a teacher on the door you've got that doubled up yeah yeah um End and send is really important for, you know, going into break times and stuff. And again, it's not about sort of a formal dismissal. It's about pulling that regulation down so that kids don't run into the corridors and out into the playground, like, you know, with all of that regulation ready to go into some crazy lunchtime behaviour. It's about bringing the, the energy and focus and calmness down so that people leave I mean that doesn't mean that 10 minutes into lunchtime you won't have the same same effect but yeah all of those things when you understand the purpose rather than the mechanism like yeah. and that takes time like I said I am I'm probably a good candidate because I was doing this job before I really knew what I was talking about um and probably six months in I was like ah I get it this is what they're doing here this is what this is meant for like a restorative conversation isn't just dangling a child off a cliff emotionally until they say sorry like it's about thinking how they might do things differently and and that circle of support but, yeah. but that takes some time um so so book to action there needs to be some thoughts yeah. um small actions that are deliberate and intentional and and the mechanism rather than the the actual thing if that makes sense yeah um, it makes perfect sense it really does and I think um you know we could probably talk for another two hours on this <laughs> topic between us but I think what you've given us here is a real sense of 
yeah, that that journey from reading the book to actually embedding this and becoming a way of, of being and doing and creating those kind of systems. So yeah, hugely grateful for your, your time and um, more than happy to talk to you and not to talk to Paul. <laughs> so there was well, no, yes, no, no disappointment on this on this call at all. <laughs> um, but before we finish, uh, we finish all of our podcast conversations with the, the same two questions. And the first question is, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, I'm reading a really great book that I would recommend to everyone. Um, I'm sure you'll know, it actually. It's called Square Pegs mm -hmm. by Ellie Costello. Like a, a lovely, lovely, it's a big old book. I'm probably going to be reading that till Christmas. <laughs> but like, um, just, just, I think with all of this practice, what's really important is that we, we, keep moving, keep learning, keep understanding different viewpoints, keep thinking differently. And um, that book has really helped with that. I think I think it's brilliant. I think Ellie's great. So, yeah. Brilliant. And the final question is, do you have a quote or a message that you would like to leave listeners with? I do. Um, so I've used this quite a lot today. Um, it's World Mental Health Day, and we've been talking a lot about... Um, relational practice to support children's mental health. So the quote to leave you with is, we must love children in a way that allows them to love themselves. And when all of those nuggets of relational practice have fallen into place, that quote will remain, will be crystal clear, like the understanding of, of, of that. Yeah, that's... That feels a perfect way to bookend this conversation. Um, thank you once again for your time. You've been very generous with your time and your, your insights and your reflections. And yeah, naming some of the things that probably think about like, oh, people think this about it and just actually naming it and actually getting underneath that's been really, really helpful. So thank you. Ah, I'm glad. It's, um, it's one of my favourite things to do. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you enjoy listening, you can support us by following on your preferred platform, sharing on social media, or leave us a review. Thanks again.